0: So when you look around the world, what do you see? What is the world like? Is it a wonderful and pretty place full of joy, full of goodness, truth and purity? I think to some degree we see some of that. But for the most part, the world is very, very different from this. Most of us, sadly, from very real, personal experience can attest negatively to this positive picture of the world. There's something clearly very wrong with the way that things are. We have inside of us a sense that things could be better and should be better and perhaps even has been better at some point in time in history. We think of sex trafficking and the millions of young girls that are trapped in the industry. We think of the homeless and jobless and incredible Poverty that many live in. We think of all the manners of injustice and suffering that echoes of a bigger problem underlying all of it. The world is enslaved to things like personal ambition, greed, lust, and selfish desires. The world is enslaved to sin and estranged to God. That is the problem. And I'm not talking about some abstract notion of the world, some entity the world that we're talking about. I'm talking about each and every one of us, you and me. All of us on our own are trapped in sin, helplessly so. And for who are we to look to? We can't look to one another because we're all in the same boat. All of us are equally trapped in sin. We commit ourselves over and over again to depravity. We don't want to seek anything better. That's the state of the world. But there is hope. And not in each of us, not in ourselves, or in the betterment of humanity, or some other sort of remedy. But the the, remedy is outside of this world unstained by the darkness. This remedy is someone who stepped in, in his purity, into this darkness to shed light. This someone is Jesus Christ. And he has made a way to freedom. So before you look at the passage today, let's open in prayer. Oh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you only by the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we acknowledge our utter dependence on you. We know that we have on our own no ability to see you or desire to know you. So I pray that you'd be working our hearts this morning to show us your word, to show us your truth. Pray that I would speak clearly and I'd not be distracting. Um, and I'd be faithful to your scriptures this morning, this evening. May you be glorified. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. Now, Jesus' disciples were just talking to him about, basically, selfish ambition. They'd ask, given him a request, like, Hey, can we sit in your right hand and left hand in the eternal kingdom? But Jesus' first response is just, don't know what you're asking, which is completely true. <laughs> they still have this expectation, in a sense, that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom and a rule, which was not at all what he was going for. But in the process, Jesus takes this opportunity to show them what real greatness is, and who's actually doing the serving. Are the great ones doing, are the ones that are receiving the service, or the ones that are actually serving? So, take a look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Here Christ sets himself as an example of service and says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Firstly, please notice how fundamentally different Christianity is from all other forms of religion and methods to get to God. There's no distant deity that, is, that, that has to be pleased and um, placated. We don't need to pamper this God in order to receive blessing from him. It's not a symptom to maintain good standing before God based on how much good and bad we do. He accepts and rejects us, blesses or curses us based on this system. No, this is not what we see here. This is no means of finding God or some ethereal connection to the universe or oneself. All other religions present means by which mankind may work their way towards God by their own strength, by their own power, by following some form of system. But in the Bible, God presents something fundamentally different. He isn't giving us a map to get to Him. He comes to us Himself. And that's what we see here is the Son of Man came. He comes to serve. And He comes to provide us with a solution to our problem. He brings us the remedy from outside of ourselves. And when it comes to reaching God, we stand with empty hands, contributing nothing. Acts 17, 24 to 25 puts it like this. The God who made the world and everything in it Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What a blow that is to pride and independence. As creatures we are utterly dependent on God for our very existence. We can't breathe, our hearts won't beat apart from His sustaining providence. And as hopeless rebels, enslaved to sin, we are even more so utterly dependent on God for salvation because we can't do anything about it on our own. We must lean in complete dependence on Him and His work. Jesus came to serve, which is even more astounding when you consider who he is, his identity. What did, what did Jesus call himself in this passage? Call himself the Son of Man. Now, I remember when I was a kid, this title always struck me as slightly odd, the Son of Man. Okay, okay. If you're a son, then you're going to be a son of man, obviously, because that's just the way things work, your parents and human, that's generally how it works. And this title seems odd at first glance, But this was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And if you look back, this actually conveys his divinity and humanity in a way that you can't possibly quite fathom. It refers to a prophecy made by Daniel hundreds of years earlier in Daniel 7. We see the Son of Man receiving all power and authority. All peoples and nations and rulers are in subjection to him. His kingdom and dominion are everlasting, never fading because of who he is. The son of man is God. Jesus Christ is God. And that's what we see Christ claiming for himself. In Colossians 1, verse 16, we see even further the extent of the son of man's power. Colossians 1:16 says that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, where thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through Him and for Him. All things are created through Him. The universe would not be here if Christ had not been the agent of its creation. Nothing would be here. Furthermore, we see that things were created for Him. That means that everything from the distant galaxies that we can barely see with the naked eye, millions and millions and billions of light years across to the heart that's beating in your chest right now all exist for the sake of the glory of Christ and for His good pleasure. All things were created for Him. Everything. This is supreme preeminence and authority. This is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man came The astonishing thing that he isn't this distant deity that just sits off and watches the world run and makes sure everything is okay after he created it. No, he came. And he comes to us, a mere speck of dust that merits not its creator's visitation at all. He's sustaining the universe's existence, all the corners of it. And he comes to this earth. And He becomes man. The means of the making of heaven and earth stooped, condescended, and became man. This is why we call Jesus Christ the God-man. Because He's fully God and fully man at the same time. Which is necessary for what He came to do here on earth. Namely, He came to die. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came to die As a ransom. The word ransom means a payment to release someone from some form of bondage. Um, So you can picture a slave belonging to an owner that will not let him go. So the slave can't do anything about it. He can't make money on his own. But someone else comes in and buys the slave from the owner on behalf of the slave. And so the slave procures freedom. But not by his own doing. The slave's freedom comes at another person's cost. So we see in this passage that Christ's death somehow ransoms and frees people from captivity. Christ makes a payment on behalf of people who cannot pay the price that is required of them. He becomes a substitute for helpless rebels. Liberation is obtained for these captives at the price of Christ's life. Which brings us to the question, what do we need to be ransomed from? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Humanity, every single one of us is enslaved to sin. Notice he doesn't say sins. That is, the individual offenses against God's authority and character, against His moral law. He says we are slaves to sin. That is, a rebellious disposition towards God and His created order. Sin is not simply a failure to keep rules and to keep commandments, although that is part of it. It has to do with a corrupt nature. We are all by nature sinful and desire wickedness rather than goodness. Sin is a state of rebellion where we look at God and His promises and will for our lives and say, No, you are not king. You don't know what's best for me. You do not create me. I know what's best for me. I'm the one that sets the rules, sets the standards, and I will be the ruler of my own life. I decide what's best for me. I am my own king. This is our natural state. And out of this we commit sins against God. Out of this rebellious state. We sin because we are at heart rebels. We, we couldn't flick a switch and suddenly become good intentioned people. As much as many of us would want to go visit the self-help section and have that be the route. But we can't do that. Our hearts are inclined, yea, even desire sin. And hate God. Sins are thoughts or acts that are contrary to God's character and law. Sin is a state of rebellion that hates God's character and his law. But that's not all. That's not the end of the bad news. We're already in a really bad situation just by state of who we are, by nature. But God is God of justice. Justice. And he cannot let this rebellion go unpunished. Now, we wouldn't want God that is not just. Because that means when we see um, uh, family, family members getting killed, dying, if we see all the injustice in the world, what we started off talking about, the sex traffic industry, all these sorts of things, we want God to not like these things. We want God to exercise justice and finish these things. So we need a God of justice. But we are ourselves objects of this justice and deserve punishment. By our sin we have earned a particular punishment from the great judge of the world. Particularly eternal death. That is God's divine anger being justly and rightly poured out on us. We deserve to drink of the cup of the fury of the wrath of God for all eternity. Imagine, if you can, the creator of the cosmos, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, and by simply willing it to exist, it continues existing. Imagine this being turning his face against you in anger. punishment this is what we deserve this is the punishment that each and every one of us deserves and this is the price that each of us must pay we stand hopelessly condemned for our wickedness before perfectly pure and sinless God and we cannot earn our way back to him it's not about points we hate him The standard is perfection, and we rebelled against the perfection, and in the perfect order that we were created. We are hopelessly captives by our own doing. Hopeless. But if we go back to our passage, the Son of Man came. There's our hope, there's our, our promise of something good. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the good news. Christ came to free the captives. Christ came to pay our ransom and to ransom sinners from the punishment that we deserve. He did this by living a perfect life that we couldn't have, by perfectly obeying God's commandments and following him in everything, in heart, in mind, what he did, what he said. And then, he bore the punishment that we deserved, and paid the penalty that we should have paid on our behalf. He died in our place. He died to bring us eternal life. He bore our punishment by taking upon himself our sin so that his father, the maker of the universe, turns his face against Christ and punishes him and pours out the terrible punishment that we deserved. So when the father looks upon Christians, he sees not their sinfulness and failures. He sees Christ's righteousness and perfect spotless obedience. That identity has been given to those who have believed in Christ. Christ substituted his righteousness for our unrighteousness and the price has been paid in full. Christ has paid our ransom. This is why Christians celebrate Good Friday because one day, 2,000 years ago, Christ paid our ransom by his death on the cross and then on Easter Sunday rose again in victory over sin and in victory over death. That's what we celebrate. If you are here and you know yourself not to be a Christian, simply by or you simply go by the tag of Christian because that's the culture you're raised in, that's what your family calls themselves. You must turn away from your sins because simply a name, calling yourself a Christian, is not what saves you. You must believe in the message of Christ and turn away from your sins. Friends, we were created to be in a perfect relationship with our Creator. Nothing in this earth is able to perfectly satisfy us like that. Furthermore, there is no earthly achievement or fulfillment that will quench the reality of our state before God as sinners. We may live long lives and build careers that make Bill Gates look like a cobbler. We may live long lives and earn the respect of our peers and elders. We may live long lives and ascend to places of great honor, sit at the right hand of the rulers of the world, and then die, leaving a great legacy behind us. But friends, the reality is this. We shall all one day die. And when we do, we will either be sinners captive to sin and bound for eternal punishment, or saints ransomed from sin and adorned with the righteousness of Christ. Those are the only two things. So do not leave this idly for some other time. The time is now. Eternity is at stake. There's no more pressing matter that you must address. This is the matter of greatest importance. Turn from your sin towards Christ and His ransom for sinners and believe. Christians, brothers and sisters, what a tremendous assurance of life and forgiveness we have in Christ. We know we shall still sin because we are not perfect by any means. We're in the process of being perfected. For we still battle against our sinful flesh, and as we wage war against our sin in pursuit of holiness, we will stumble and sometimes fall into our old rebellious ways. My tendency is to heap such great shame and guilt upon myself um, that the last thing I want to do is go to God in prayer, I just sit there in my shame after having failed. As if my salvation was conditional on my performance. But brothers and sisters, this is not so. After we have given into temptation, the very thing we need most is to run to the cross, run to the Father in prayer, knowing that He will not disown us. That is what Christ has done for us. He has given us assurance of pardon before the Father. Assurance that transcends all things. We must be remorseful about sin, most clearly, and fight for righteousness, but need not attempt to hide our faces from God. Our ransom has been paid in full, and Christ drank the cup of the fury of the wrath of God on our behalf. And for Christians, the cup is empty. There is not a drop left. It's empty. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know of all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. There are many things that are fighting for our attention, that are claiming to be the purpose and point of life. But brothers and sisters, this is the matter of greatest importance. You've been bought to the price. You've been ransomed. And now your identity lies with Christ. Serve him. Serve your brothers and sisters in the church. Look at Christ's great example for us. Let's pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your ransoming work for us on the cross thank you that we have assurance as Christians before you that we will be forgiven, that we will be accepted, and that we are adopted into your family. Thank you that despite anything that could happen in this world, nothing at all could get in between us and what you've done for us. The cross is the final say with regard to our salvation. I pray that you'd be working in our hearts, that you'd convict us of our the um, fullness of our desires for the things of this world. And I pray for those of us that are not yet Christians, that you would change our hearts. And we no longer want the things of the world, but that want you. And that you'd show your gospel to us and that we'd be saved. So I pray that you'd be glorified for the rest of this evening, for the rest of this week, as we think upon the great gospel, Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. Pray of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.